who makes the most mistakes? Who has the most blind spots? Who stereotypes the most people? It's happy people. Happy people are actually kind of the worst decision makers. When you're happy, the risk sensitive parts of your brain get suppressed, they get inhibited. So you're more likely to be susceptible to various kinds of cognitive errors. You downplay your risk exposures. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I am delighted you are here for another fascinating conversation. This week, we have Dr. Matt Gorin. This is Dr. Gorin's second appearance on the Most Hated F Word podcast, and it was a delightful conversation. The episode is called Emotional Wealth, Your Guide to Financial Wellbeing. The conversation really centers around emotional wealth. What do our emotions, both positive and negative emotions, what influence do they have on our wealth? And do they lead to a greater sense of financial well-being? Well, these are some of the conversations that we discuss on this wide-ranging conversation. But you'll hear Dr. Gorin discusses the role of emotions in decision-making and how we can use our emotions, and again, both the negative and the positive ones to help us make better financial decisions. Dr. Gorin really emphasizes the importance of listening to these emotions. And I highlight this, both the negative and the positive ones. These emotions are really messengers that are trying to tell us something. And when we avoid them or ignore them, we're really missing a lot of information or the opportunity to learn so much about ourselves. And that's what really fascinates me about the human experience of money. Money really can be a conduit. It could be a portal or any other thing, like a door, a doorway into ourself if we allow ourselves to go through that door. Before this fascinating conversation with Dr. Gorn, I have a couple things to say. You can support the show in one or two ways. You can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or you can share this episode or any other episode with someone who you think would enjoy. Now, I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Matt Gorin. Matt, welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here again. Thank you for having me back on. I thought it was six months ago. It was three years ago. This pandemic, this I don't, <laughs> this wild time just made, for me, time just, yeah. I don't know, it just kind of evaporated. However, a lot has happened since our first conversation. 
including we each have similar New Orleans Jazz Fest posters. So that's right. I think that's a good start. You've been doing a lot of change. Or when I say changes, you were you're teaching as a professor and now you're teaching professionals. I thought we would start with a piece of advice that I always hear in our financial services industry. And I want to get your perspective out of this sage advice of just take the emotion out of your decision. Is this possible, Dr. Matt Gorin? I have heard this advice. I've heard try to be as rational as possible, downplay your emotions. I actually think that's really bad advice. I, I don't think that works for most people. I don't think it's actually possible either. I think we can be rational and be kind of like computers briefly for brief spurts, but we're going to come back to our emotions. We're going to make most of our decisions based on emotions or our impulses. And to try to like pretend we don't is in the long run going to lead us down a bad path. We should be mindful of our emotions and we should use our emotions to help us make better decisions. You know, you say we shouldn't pretend like we don't. I can't tell you how many fund companies or marketing firms in the financial services industry like actually have a graph that shows like downturn in the markets and how mar like markets recover. And it's like the bullet point, the key takeaways, take your emotions out of decision. What do you suggest then? If you're saying like we can't, how do we do it? Because we know we're emotional creatures and then we just pull our money out and make all these terrible financial decisions. Yeah, well, so that's the whole podcast then, right? Is the how. And we can like dive into these specific things. So there are instances where you don't want to chase every single impulse you just brought up. The stock market goes down. I think for a lot of us, that's terrifying, right? We're seeing our, not just our net worth goes down because kind of who cares, right? What we're seeing is our goals fail. We're seeing our dreams evaporate right in front of us, right? That's actually what we're feeling in that moment. And so in some instances where we can do really destructive things because of our impulses, like sell everything when the market bottoms out, I would say for that instance, can we set our portfolios up in a way ahead of time to try to minimize that, the, the, the negative consequences of that fear, to make it more difficult for us to panic and, and sell. And we can talk about how we can do that. There are other times where that emotion, that fear is actually really good information that we should be listening to that. Like, I want to buy this really expensive thing, but I'm kind of nervous. I don't know, is this the right choice? I feel apprehension ahead of time. Hang on, let's listen to that. If you're feeling that apprehension now before you've bought the thing, maybe that's your supercomputer of a brain trying to tell you something, but it doesn't speak English. You know, the amygdala part isn't telling you, well, the reason you're feeling nervous is because, it, but it's still trying to tell you something and listen to that. Listen to your fears and as an advisor, you could help clients do that when it's going to help you make a better decision. And then in those instances where those fears are going to have you make a really destructive decision, well, let's find ways to protect ourselves from that. So it's not like I'm making this blanket statement of like rationality, bad, emotions, good all the mm -hmm. time. It's sometimes emotions lead us the right way. Sometimes they lead us astray and set yourself up ahead of time for 
making the best decisions you can with your emotions. I feel like that would be a good title to a song, Listen to Your Fears. But this idea of listening to your fears, I think is interesting to me in the sense, I feel like often we're socialized, like if I have a negative feeling like a fear or the market's down, it's like I'm no good or whatever the underlying fear is. At times, it seems that we just dismiss this or like I said, consider ourselves bad about it. But I'm hearing you say that we should even listen to these negative fears in addition to probably the positive emotions as well. Or not negative fears, negative emotions. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I do think we've got a bias towards downplaying the negative emotions. We're like not allowed to feel bad. You're not allowed to talk about feeling bad in society. I, I think that's kind of a mistake broadly. Let's talk about what are those things that make you anxious, that make you feel afraid, what are the things that make you feel angry? What are the things that make you feel envious of other people? Let's actually focus on those things and talk about that and, and break that down. And there are, from the, the planner's point of view, from the advisor's point of view, there are some of those emotions that can help the client make decisions that are in their best interest, that are good for them. There are other times when those emotions can lead people astray. And the same thing is true about the positive emotions, right? So we often in our profession talk about fear. We just you know, began the podcast talking about that. But good emotions, positive emotions can also lead us astray. And there's this whole line of research going over decades. Who makes the most mistakes? Who has the most blind spots? Who stereotypes the most people, it's happy people. Happy people are actually kind of the worst decision makers. When you're happy, the risk sensitive parts of your brain get suppressed, they get inhibited. So you're more likely to be susceptible to various kinds of cognitive errors. You downplay your risk exposures. So happiness is not always good when it comes to a decision-making point of view, right? So I, I don't mean to say, oh, these, you know, let's harp on the negative emotions. No, let's harp on the positive ones too. Sometimes emotions help us make the right decisions. Happiness, so when do you feel happy, right? Okay, well, let's try to focus your financial life in a way that makes you happier more often. Probably that's a good thing for most people. But at the same time, let's not just be like, happiness is the be-all, end-all. When can happiness actually make you have more risk exposures? In that case, we want to set our financial lives up in a way where our happiness can't be used against us. You know, this makes me think of, I don't know who wrote it, but a, a paper that looked at people who regularly practice meditation, which I mean, I think is a, an opportunity for us to listen to our fears or pause, not be so reactive, had lower net worths. And, and like the assumption is, is <laughs> maybe this this happiness momentum to spend your money or not to save your money. But then another study that I was looking at, people who practice meditation reported more feelings of, which used a certain framework on financial well-being. So they experienced more, I guess, overall well-being. So it's so interesting that like, if you bring in the happiness topic, of, at times it makes me wonder, what are we solving for? Are we solving for this large, large bank account? Are we solving for a good life or feel more experiences of happier to be happier. But I guess it's it's an and or. But anyhow, I think that that's really interesting that you brought up happier people are 
can bring more risk. Yeah, absolutely. And then on the flip side of it, we can look at something like envy, which we might go, what, what's a horrible emotion all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Envy, that's bad, right? This is a bad emotion. It's one of the you know seven deadly sins or whatever. When you have envy towards someone else's life, when you have envy towards someone else's situation, that can be motivating to pursue the financial behaviors that are going to give you that person's life. Now, that emotion on its own might not make you feel very good, but if you then set yourself up towards some kind of financial journey, let's say, where you have more financial independence, where you have more discretionary income, where you're able to take more vacations, sure, the envy itself may be not great, but what that emotion ends up getting you, what it ends up getting your family, your children, well, those can all be really good things. So the impulse shouldn't necessarily be, hey, you're feeling envy, shut up, be happy, Mm -hmm. go Mm -hmm. meditate, and then you you, you don't have to worry about it. Well, wait, as your advisor, when you're feeling envy, let's break down, what kind of life do you think you want? What do they have that you don't have? Okay, and now let's work backwards and try to get you that life, try to get you those things. And then in the very long run, you're set up in a way where you don't have to worry so much about money. So the idea here is not, let's just shut down the emotion, in this case, envy. Let's think, how can we use that in a way to make our clients have better lives, to make ourselves have better lives? I feel like as you were talking, I had to, I had to listen to my fears. As you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, okay. But if the envy controls it, I might just sail to this like island of that I assumed was going to be like this happy place or this good life. And I might be like 80 years old and realize that this envy steered me towards an island I would have never chose. But then I listened to myself and I was still listening to you. (laughs) And I was like, well, no, wait, perhaps what I'm hearing Matt say is like, we can listen to that envy and it's a message. Like these negative emotions are a message. And perhaps I think I want to get your take on this. That's where it takes some, I guess, individual reflection on, is this envy out of like a destructive motive or is it out of like, no, no, I, I just want a little bit more time with my family or time family's a value. So they have that. And I'm observing that I want it as opposed to like, I've seen those quotes and I, I used to abide by these. So that's why I'm probably uh, a little bit more knee jerk reaction to this. But the ones that are like, do something today that others can't or won't do. So you can do something that they can't do later or something like that. And like, I, I lived by that. It was like, you know, motivational things on my wall. I'm like, mm, wait, I don't like this anymore. So I just wanted to get your thoughts. Are you suggesting like these negative emotions, we can use them as some insight to think like what message, but then it's up to us to like, I guess, figure out how that applies to our own personal lives. Yeah. If I'm trying to like boil this message down to like a catchphrase that we could put on one of these posters and it's (laughs) emotions are a tool. Yeah. Just leave it at that. So if if you are feeling envy, let's say, can you take that and spin it in a way where it leads to something productive for you, where it leads to more financial independence, where it leads to you creating a better situation for your family, for the people you care about. Can you do that? And if you can, great, that's a wonderful tool and let's use that tool. If you can't, if that's really just like, oh, here go, here you go with the envy again, it's another self-destructive thing, it's another ruined day because you're ruminating on how bad you have it. 
okay, it's not that great of a tool then. And, you know, so again, not that we always have to follow every emotional impulse, but when we can use those in a way that gives us something that's like objectively better, mm -hmm. great, let's go for it. And again, that's, that's not every emotion all the time. And I, and we, I mean, to oversimplify, you can like bifurcate those emotions that lead you into better outcomes and the, the, we kind of talked about the envy one. I see that other person able to go on vacations with their family. I'm envious of that. So now I'm going to use that to spark a whole financial journey that's going to lead me to be able to do that thing. Okay, that's kind of positive, right? But then we began talking about the negative emotions around the stock market dropping, right? And the panic that people might have if the market drops, that's probably not good. So we can use the envy in a way that's positive, but then we've got the panic, that's not good. So what can we do? Recognizing in a moment of calmness, I can be rational now. If I'm calm, the market isn't dropping. We actually, as of this recording, yesterday was the all-time high for the Dow Jones. So this is a pretty good time to be calm and, and think. Can I set up some rules for myself? Can I set my accounts up in a way where I've got my retirement account over here. It's maybe in a 401k if you're in the US or IRAs or if you're in the US. And those are off on the side in a bunch of, let's say, passively managed index funds. I have to log into the account. I have to find all my different passwords. I have to do a lot of stuff in order to mess with those accounts. And it's actually kind of a pain in the ass to change anything, to sell anything. Then when I feel panic, not today, because the stock market's doing okay right now, but when at some point in the future I feel panic, I just put a giant wall in front of my accounts. I made it really difficult to allow my emotions to actually change my behavior. So there are times when the emotions can lead you astray. Put up those walls, automate your finances, make it more difficult to change things around. And then again, when your emotions can lead you down a better path, let's let's follow that too. Mm -hmm. Back to your uh, your banner or your your slogan: "Money is it or emotions are a tool." I'm hearing you say like it is a tool, and sure, we picked a so-called negative emotion of envy, but I feel like the positive emotions could be used as a tool is or as a negative tool is if we use it as a negative tool as well. And so, what I mean by that is like I don't know. I'm feeling satisfaction or joy out of like, you know, a behavior that's going to be destructive to my family or, or like maybe it's a spending, maybe it's gambling or whatever it is. But I think what I'm really hearing you say is negative and positive emotions are both a tool and they both can be used positively in our uh, financial lives or negatively. Yeah. I think to take this positive emotion that had a negative consequence, I go back to myself before I switched careers. So I used to be a psychologist, now I'm a financial educator, I guess. And to go back before I was a financial educator, before I had any idea of what this was, I'm thinking like, yeah, some of my happiest times were back then, but now I look back on it, I'm like, because I was ignorant, right? Ignorance <laughs> is bliss in, in this case. And looking at how little I was making, how I had no savings, how some of my other happy friends were in incredible amounts of debt, were using student loan debt to pay their rent. Like, 
that actually was not a very good time in any kind of objective sense of like, are we financially stable? Are we financially free? Like, hey, I had a, a good time then, right? There were certainly moments where I was really happy. Now I look back on it, you know, 15 years later, and I'm like, man, I kind of resent my happy younger self, that jerk. Why wasn't he saving more? Why wasn't he making more money? Because that younger person didn't set my current self up very well. And we can take this out of my own context, right? You're looking at, say, the baby boomers now retiring, and there's very little readiness for retirement. Retirement savings are, are very low for that generation. You go back to the 70s and 80s, I would imagine a lot of those people be like, yeah, I could have gone with like 5% less happiness, 10% more financial responsibility. And now that I'm 70, I'd be so much better off. My lifetime quality of life would be so much higher if I wasn't so focused in the moment on just how happy can I possibly be. So interesting. Like this, this happiness and our money journeys is really fascinating to me. It seems like we hear about this like very hedonic focused person who spends all their money and goes on these crazy vacations and gets in debt and like their future self regrets the younger version. Or we have these people who are hyper-focused on their future self and saved and saved and saved. And they're like, damn, I wish I would have done more of those like pleasurable moments. From your lens as a I mean, you're still a psychologist and an educator. Why do you think we do all or nothing so much when it comes to like fun experiences or saving? Like, why aren't we in the middle a little bit more? I, well, the, that makes for the easiest stories to tell. So I, th I think most people are probably more <laughs> in the middle, right? But we can come up with these extremes. Do you think we're more in the middle? I think most people, I think it's probably like a you know, normal distribution, right? Like there's all of us could be saving more and being more responsible. But then at the same time, all of us could probably stand sometimes to spend a little bit more and, and enjoy life a little bit more, right? So again, the to come back to this emotions a tool, sometimes regret, that emotion of regret or of anticipatory regret, meaning regret I think I will experience later, sometimes that can be really useful. There's interventions where psychologists have, this is that research out of UCLA primarily, where you show people computer-generated images of themselves when they're supposedly 70, 80 you know, years old and making that future self real and then focusing on how much regret will that person, you, in the future feel when you do this behavior or that behavior today. And the more that people were thinking about the future regret I will have, the the more healthy their financial choices were today. That's a really useful emotion, right? It's irrational. That's actually a really silly thing to do if you're trying to be rational because many of those people will be dead. They're not going to make it to 80. So by pushing all of this financial health into the future, you're actually being kind of irrational. Yet that ends up helping people, the typical person, in the long run, it sets them up on a, a, a much healthier financial journey in the long run. So sometimes use that regret. And then on the, the flip side of it, you might have you as an individual or you might know people where it's like, damn, man, spend some money. Spend a little bit. Like you don't need to eat ramen 
and drink tap water exclusively every single day, like live a little. And then what's the fear, whatever that you're seeing them undergoing then? Let's maybe tone that down. Let's find ways to tap into other emotions that are going to get you to loosen up a little bit. So again, the lens being, we kind of know as financial planners, give or take for individuals, there is like an objectively appropriate path to financial independence. It's a balance of the present versus the future. We can be that outsider, the objective observer, seeing people uh, behave irrationally. And then the path forward for that person, the advice you're going to give that person isn't, we'll just be a robot and be totally rational. It's sometimes this regret is useful. Let's lean into that. Sometimes this happiness is useful. Let's lean into that. Let's help guide people on that more objectively appropriate path by accounting for all of these different emotional experiences. It's so fascinating. I just appreciate, like we're talking about money right now and we haven't even, I don't think we said the word money yet. Just how much like how much impact people like yourself, psychologists have come into the financial services field and really helped us understand like the human experience of money. There is so many layers that you're talking about here. And I think these types of conversations help us recognize that, oh yeah, and almost give us permission to be like, yeah, this is crazy. Like this experience I'm having with money. However, we can use like things that you're suggesting, like that future version of ourselves. Is that how Hirschfeld's work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, a few weeks he's going to be on the podcast, so we'll, we'll let him know we're talking about it. So you have recently been doing a lot of work with heuristics and biases. We've kind of been circling in and around this, like making decisions, good decisions, hopefully good decisions, maybe not rational ones, but favorable decisions with the information that we have. With your extensive psychological research on decision-making and all the other psychological research you've done, when it comes to making financial decisions or money decisions, what have you been able to pinpoint or, I don't want to say discover, I'll, I'll stick with pinpoint, pinpoint that has allowed you and your teachings to help people make good financial decisions. And I'm just saying good because I don't think we have rational, we don't have perfect, so good yeah. financial decisions that can balance this present and future orientation of ourselves. Yeah, I'm going to do a, a clarification in case some of my psychologist friends come after me. So I have not done the research myself. I'm reviewing other people's Right, yeah, okay. So just to be uh, yeah. clear here, I don't have a psych lab that I'm running this stuff out. You are the implementator. We got the knowledge people, now you're implementing it. Yeah, there you go. I'm more, it's like the uh, physics theorist versus the physics, uh, exper experimental versus theoretical physics, maybe we'd go something like that. So there's a, a few different uh, instances that I've, you know, read other people's work, tried to spin that in a way where we can apply it with our clients' financial lives. And again, with this mindset of emotions are a tool and rationality is not the be all, end all. And one of the ones that I've talked about quite a bit is the anchoring bias, also known as the anchoring and insufficient adjustment bias. So like, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, the idea is people will make their judgments relative to some reference point, an anchor, right? And they'll do this even when it is totally irrational, right? They'll make judgments based on sometimes these anchors that are like comically off comically irrelevant. And so 
for example, if you're you're undergoing salary negotiations for a new job, right? Let's use this context, right? So you found a job where the typical person makes $100,000 a year, let's say, but you want a little bit higher. Well, what's a good anchor to use? You walk in the door and say, like, what did Tom Brady make his last year? What was Tom Brady's last contract? Wasn't it like $22 million a year or something like that? I don't know. Right? I, crazy. Let's start there, right? Let's, let's start at $22 million a year as the anchor. Now, that's irrelevant, right? That's completely irrelevant to your own $100,000 a year salary negotiation. And yet, if you believe the decades of psych research on this, by putting that $22 million a year in the head of the managing, the, the hiring manager, they're going to be biased by that. And they're going to give you a higher starting salary than if you walked in and said, well, what about 100 or what about 105? No, just throw these comic uh, numbers out there. So one way you can look at this is say, well, this is totally irrational. And we need to be, you know, basing our decisions on total computer-like, machine-like rationality. So no anchors. Don't use any of these anchors. These anchors can bias us. And then you, you actually try to see that through. And it turns out people just like shut down because they need anchors to make their decisions. Ideally, they need good anchors that are relevant, ideally, but even if they don't have those, they'll just invent new ones. They'll invent these ridiculous anchors. You have to have some kind of anchor. You have to have some kind of comparison group. You have to, that's how our brains make judgments. So in the absence of a good anchor, in the absence of a relevant anchor, where can we as planners show up? We can give our clients those anchors. We can work with the clients to create the relevant anchor. Now, again, you might say, well, that's why not try to get people to be more rational? Well, in this case, the answer is because their brains will shut down, right? Mm -hmm. It won't work. So someone wants to know what's an appropriate salary help them come up with a good anchor. Somebody wants to know how much stock should I have in my portfolio? Let's look at historical averages. Let's look at people like you. Let's look at how much stock you need to be expected to meet your goals. How much should I be spending on vacations every year? Okay, let's go through. This is how much this kind of vacation costs. We can start there. We can start with the percentage of your salary. We can start with whatever. Give people the anchors, they'll then use those to make their judgments and their decisions. Again, why not just be anchorless? Why not just come up with the totally most rational thing? Because it simply won't work. You need, as a planner, to work with people's brains as how they actually are, not how you think they ought to be. So many different thoughts are going through my mind on this one, but... I was going to ask you a question. We can blend it in here now. And I think the anchoring is a great example is that in the past, there's been some critiques around cognitive bias about like just telling people these biases don't really elicit change or meaningful long-term change. And even some of the, 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 the founders of these cognitive biases come out and be like, well, we can't just like information isn't going to do much on this. However, in this case, I'm hearing that what we're actually doing on this case in particular is we're creating an anchor that might be useful as opposed to them automatically creating an anchor. Because as you just said, if we go anchorless, we're going to create one and it might not be, I'm, I'm staying away from rational. It might not be a useful anchor. How would you respond to that? Is like, you know, if we just talk about cognitive biases, 
sure, it's neat, it's interesting, but are they useful? In this case, I hear anchoring is, how about some other ones? So to touch on that idea of research on trying to eliminate these biases, to, you were bringing this up, right? The vast majority of these studies find at best, de-biasing interventions are like barely useful. Like that's as good as it gets. And just telling people about the bias is one really common way of trying to make people more rational. And again, it just doesn't work that well. Far better is on the one hand, like we said with retirement accounts, setting up your financial life in a way where your biases can't mess with you. Or like I'm suggesting here is lean in like the, the anchoring one. You need those anchors, so we might as well give people good ones. You name a bias, this almost be like a, like a trivia thing. You just throw a bias at me and be like, oh, okay, this is what I would think to do here. Do you want to play it? Yeah, I'll do one, and then you just start throwing them at me. Okay. So another one would be like status quo bias. That's another one we hear quite a bit. Status quo bias is people have too much of a preference for how things are, irrationally, too much of a preference to just keep going through their lives the way that they've been going through it. And sometimes that can lead them astray. So I'm not saying just lean into that all the time because sometimes that's a problem. But then more objectively from the outsider looking in, there are times when you actually want your clients to engage in the status quo bias. Let's go back to the stock market plummeting, right? The example we began this thing with. In that instance, the stock market goes way down. People's impulse might be to panic. You, the planner, come back and say, well, wait a minute. What have we been doing? What is the status quo? What, what's your life right now? Well, the life right now is I leave the account alone. The status quo is not to touch anything. It's not to panic. There you go, right? Let's lean into the status quo. Let's pause here. Let's come back a week later. Let's just let things smooth out. Let's let things be stable. One more week. Okay, I'm biased for the status quo, like everybody's biased for the status quo. In this instance, that bias is leading me to the more appropriate decision. So great, let's use that bias. You know what I like about this is in the realm of financial literacy, we've talked about this before in the podcast, like does financial literacy work? And, you know, this could be a long, nuanced conversation, but this idea of just-in-time financial literacy really interests me, like when I need the information. And it sounds like you're talking about just-in-time conversations about cognitive biases. Yeah, right. I'm using this right now, and now it's relevant to me as a client. And, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, status quo, okay. As opposed to, like, appointment two, I'm like, okay, you have these cognitive biases, these, these, these. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, the, the research you're talking about is, like, to a shocking degree, financial literacy interventions like don't work. Like, they feel like they should, right? Like it feels like giving people knowledge, they're then going to use that knowledge. But I, I think ultimately, again, we are emotional animals. Our emotions guide almost everything we do. Education on its own is a more rational, logical thing. So even if I know the right thing, I know what I'm supposed to do rationally, most of the time, I'm not going to do it because I'm following those emotions. So you, the planner, or you just the self-aware individual, you pop in and say, okay, let me use those emotions in a way that's going to hopefully lead me in the right direction. So status quo bias, it's 
really harping in on that, like stick with the plan, stick with the status quo. We've got, I mean, so many more. Do you want to throw some at me and we can see if I can spin them? I got two that are going to be together that, that we've seen a lot during the pandemic. Yeah. Overconfidence bias that goes into the Dunner-Kruger. So like, okay. I like, do you know, do you know where I'm getting like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like Bitcoin could be, or like, oh, I know a little bit about this. So I'm confident. And now I'm an expert, even though yeah. I'm far from Okay. So overconfidence bias for those who, that's a pretty intuitive one, right? The definition of that, mm-hmm. right? People tend to have inflated sense of their own abilities, overconfidence, right? It means exactly what uh, we think. Dunning-Kruger effect is way more popular lately. I see this like in memes and stuff now. That is that the lower your knowledge or the lower your skill at a thing, in your ignorance, you like dramatically overestimate your own ability or your own knowledge, right? So the less you know, the more you think you know. That's the Dunning-Kruger effect very brief tangent here. The Dunning-Kruger effect was the first thing I ever did as a psych researcher. This is back in like 2003. I was in a lab. I was an undergrad, like senior thesis, you know, lab worker. And that was the very first thing I ever did. So I think it's so funny, like Dunning-Kruger effect is like blown up and now everybody knows what it is. That was like such an obscure niche thing back (laughs) in 2003 when I first started doing this. Okay. So you gave me a tough one, but here's how I would would do this thing, right? So generally speaking, people that are already overconfident and they're already, you know, investing or already, you know, managing their personal finances. So many of these people, in my experience, they've already got on their phone some kind of Robinhood account or some other kind of day trading account. Okay. And so here's where you, the rational objective planner, are thinking we can't have this, right? We can't have you be super overconfident because you're going to destroy your finances, right? But on the flip side, I can't just pretend like you're not overconfident. Yeah, that's the, as a planner, you're in this weird spot. Yeah, so here's what I've done. And I actually did this to a little bit to an extent with myself, right? So actively encourage your clients, get on, get on Robinhood. Go on it. Right now, what do you think is going to be this amazing new stock, right? What do you think is the the next best thing? You want to do options trading. You want to do like triple leveraged crypto futures, whatever thing you think is going to make you a millionaire. Go for it. Don't talk about it. Don't, you know, just talk this big game. Do it. How much can you afford right now to completely lose? And maybe it's $1,000, maybe it's two, maybe it's $10,000, whatever it is for the client, right? What can you actually afford to lose? Let's go. Let's, I'll, I'll sit here with you. I'll, you know, help you get it done. I'll help you make these decisions and, and execute on it. And then what happens? You're tracking it. You're actually, you have all the data right there in the Robinhood account. What happens to the vast majority of these people? they fail. They lose money, right? But now they've done it in a controlled setting that's monitored by you, the planner. Everything's written down. Everything's pathed out in advance. You take someone who doesn't have the education, doesn't have the skill, Dunning-Kruger effect. You're giving it to them in that moment. You're ratcheting up the knowledge, which then when they're seeing themselves fail, 
most of the time. The overconfidence comes right back down to what hopefully is a more appropriate level. It, it's not saying never do it, don't do it, you don't have permission to do it. That's like the rational thing, right? It's like, just don't be overconfident. They're going to ignore you or they're going to lie to you, right? No, let's lean in and really dive into this. Let's actually test your overconfidence. Then they fail. Then the overconfidence comes back down to more reasonable levels. Unless they succeed, because that <laughs> happens too. In which case, you've now created a monster. But I guess I'm willing to roll the dice on that because, you know, yesterday on the Reddit, one of the top Reddit posts, some guy turned $20,000 into $1.2 million with a single option trade. So if that's the worst case scenario, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take that for my client. But, but they're not telling all the ones that they failed on the Reddit stories. And then yeah. the availability bias of all those Reddit readers are like... Exactly. So do it. Post your losses. Keep track of it. That'd be my thing there. Lean into it and actually track it. Again, it's just like this just-in-time cognitive biases. I, I This thought came to me from someone I was talking to a number of years ago now. It was 2020. They had a client who, late 40s, came into a financial windfall, wasn't expecting it, basically had no retirement savings. I think it was about a million dollars. So really, really lucky. I think there was a family death. But they were investing it in diversified portfolio. And it wasn't sexy. It wasn't cool. It was getting some modest returns. And this guy started playing around with Bitcoin during 2020. Sure. You know, sure. And, and he did well. His overconfidence bias was through the roof. This guy had never taken a financial course in his life. And by the end of the year, he pulled out all money from the market and put it into Bitcoin because he was, what the, the planner said is he's figured it out. And they tried and tried and tried. And, and it goes from 70K to 18K or whatever. And he, yeah. yeah. I like this test. I mean, you might have to check with your compliance on it, but this <laughs> test of like actually going and do yeah. it. Yeah. This is, that's very easy for me to say, not having a compliance yeah. I need to report to this theory, right? The theory of it. But now let's, let's go back to that guy, right? Because if I'm his planner and how might I have done this, right? He's having a lot of success. I don't want to forbid him mm -hmm. from doing this, right? It reminds me of my son. If I tell him not to say the F word, I know he's going to try to say it with his friends. There we go. If you're curious, we had an uncensored F <laughs> So. So now if I'm that, you know, planner for that other guy, right? So telling this dude, never trade the Bitcoin, never do any of these aggressive things, he's just going to lie to me. That's what you're setting mm -hmm. yourself up for there, right? And there's another bias we hadn't talked about yet, the mental accounting bias, where people don't look at their finances holistically. They look at them in a really segmented way. So this guy might be saying, I'm going to ignore my retirement portfolio, this diversified thing over here, because that's kind of boring. I'm hyper-focused on my crypto investments, right? And those are doing really well. That's the, the, the general bias, right, of segmenting our accounts. But mental accounting can also be an extremely powerful way of managing our money. And so as the planner, you can set up all these accounts really strategically and say, these are the retirement accounts which we like do not touch, right? Like we agree, we're not touching those. That's for 20 years from now. We're not going to deal with those at all. And then here's your emergency fund. We're not going to touch that one either. And here's all these different accounts that all have their own purpose. But your crypto account, your gambling account, whatever, that's this one right here. 
And for this guy, because he's inherited a million bucks or whatever, that might be $200,000. Okay. Getting this person to buy into that mental accounting bias, you're, you know, you're segmenting everything. Go for it. Play with this to your heart's content. Go do the triple leveraged Bitcoin future. Go make your, you figured it out, right? Go make your millions of dollars, but in this mental account. And a planner maybe didn't do that for him, right? A planner didn't provide those segmented accounts. And in a, a moment of overconfidence, this guy said, well, why don't I just take all of my money? Because there are no accounts, right? It's just money. Money is money. It's fungible. I'll just take all of it and throw it at this one account. Not using that bias, not putting those guardrails in place means, oops, this dude just lost 80% of his net worth. I, I mentioned this earlier. I appreciate how we are absorbing more like the psychological way of thinking from the field of psychology. For so long, we tried to solve this problem in financial services by educating them. And we know this knowing and doing gap is so big. Where I'm really hearing you say, you know, let's try it. Let's experience you. I'm not going to tell you it's going to hurt. You're going to feel it's going to hurt if it goes down. And it links back to our conversations around emotions and how, how much our emotions are linked to our finances. But if I feel that pain of actually, oh my gosh, he's A, giving me permission to do this. So he's not like shunning me or almost shaming me for even thinking this. I'm going to be open and transparent next time, but I'm going to try it and it might fail. And now I'm going to be, I think, more receptive to stick with the, the plan that is, I yeah. guess, researched and evidence-based. Because you could show them all the research and evidence-based, but if they're feeling that emotion, like, I can do this, I can do this. Right. I think interventions like this help. Yeah, absolutely. And I think our whole field is not just now, but for the last decade, like increasingly leaning into the psychology of things. I think we're going to see that trend even more in the future. And I, I believe that because if I'm looking at all these different technological trends, right, what's the value of a technician picking your investment portfolio? Well, it's probably the lowest now that it's ever been. It's probably going to only get even lower because of AI because of these passive funds that tend to do pretty well, that 98% of investment managers fail to beat their benchmarks, right? So, well, we can't lean into that technical side anymore. What are we going to replace that with? This coaching or, or counseling or whatever. Budgeting used to be something really hard to do, but now everybody's got apps on their phone that can handle the budgeting for them. Some of these really complicated insurance products are becoming much more simplified. And there's entire companies out there that's like, we get you to apply for this in like 30 minutes. This thing that used to take you weeks and weeks, now 30 minutes in and out. All of the technical sides, whatever you're thinking about, any of the technical things are becoming easier and easier and easier. And yet, to your point, people's financial lives are still messed up, right? So then where do the financial planners come in or the financial coaches or the financial therapists? It's really dialing in, focusing all of their attention on the actual human being who's dealing with this. Because we've figured out the objective side of it for the most part. The easy part of it is create the portfolio or identify the insurance products. That's actually the easier thing to do. Getting someone to stick with the plan, getting someone to listen to you, that's hard. 
that's really hard. So that's where our field's going to have to go. I noticed for your, you did a recent presentation and there was a description and it said us financial, I can't remember if you said counselors or coaches. It didn't say financial planners. Can you, can you provide your thoughts? You mentioned financial therapists, financial counselors, coaches, and financial planners. We've got four different lens on how we see money. Well, if you want, you can go to each one or more so like where are you thinking with, you know, with your education program that you're providing to planners? Like we can't be all, I feel need to move transition so we can really experience the human side, but yet still give the objective knowledge. So how do you see this role in the future? Yeah, I think historically, if you go back even say 30, 40 years, somewhere in that, there just wasn't a such thing as a financial coach, or at least there wasn't a profession of financial coaches, wasn't a profession of financial therapists. That's, those are relatively new things. Financial planners, you go back 40 years, they were just technicians, really. They were really focused on either investment management or insurance planning. And I think did the right thing as a field by identifying financial coaching as a unique thing, identifying financial therapy as a unique thing, And now where I expect us to go is we're going to have those lines be a bit blurred. We're going to kind of come back as the technical side becomes less important, relatively speaking, you know, as we were saying, all financial planners are going to partly need to be coaches. All financial planners we partly need to be therapists. There might be fringe cases where you need that dedicated therapist expert all of us are going to need to have a little bit of those skills. We're all going to need to meet clients where they're at because even something that's purely technical, like identify your retirement portfolio is loaded with emotion. We've got to lean into that as a field. And I look at Dalton education where it's been historically and then where we're taking it. Dalton education may be more than any of the big CFP educators leaned into the technical side of things. Now, I think historically Dalton education has had the most deep, comprehensive technical training of of anybody out there, whether it's the College for Financial Planning, the American College, whatever. Dalton, you could say, that's the most technical one. And now as I'm there and I'm running the curriculum for that, we've got to have more financial coaching content there, more content that's rooted in the emotions and in the communication. So we're going to have much more of that going forward. And there's some like, I don't know, trade secret stuff or whatever they're working on. But I think people are going to be very interested in seeing what we've got coming down uh, the pipe in the next couple years of not only adding a little bit of content, but adding designations that if I spatted them off are pretty well known that you know we're adding in. So you go and get your CFP. You don't only get your CFP, you get some of these other more communication focused more psychology-focused designations as, as part of that. And that shows how important I think this is. It shows how important the field thinks this is. There, like By design, there's a blending. You can't be a planner unless you are also a coach or, to some extent, a therapist. I really appreciate that answer. And you know, when you said, we're going to all have to meet the clients where they're at, it's interesting. I would say only five years ago, the, the narrative would have been like, well, I fired that client. It, they didn't listen. And now it's like this recognition of like, whoa, 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 maybe it's me. <laughs> I'm not yeah. meeting my client where they're at. I'm not recognizing them for them. Right. Absolutely. 
What I thought was interesting is last time when we talked about budgeting for happiness, we have these cognitive biases that are impacting our finances. Throughout this conversation, you really talked about automate. How can, if anything at all, this automation allow us to then spend and not worry about doing fun things in life? Yeah, so uh, we dove into this years ago, episode 17 17. or something like that. Go check that out. So the quick summary of it is automate your spending on those fixed expenses, your housing bill, some of things like the grocery bill or whatever. Like Try to keep those low. Try to automate that. There's your stable financial life. You kind of take emotion out of it, right? You don't need to be worried about how much are you spending on electricity because it's just kind of automated. And then that frees your budget up and frees you up to spend as much money on your variable expenses as you you feel like at the time. So like you want to go see that movie. You want to take your spouse out to a dinner date or something. You want to go do these fun spur of the moment things. Go for it. You can't because you've kept the rest of your budget low and, and automated and like emotionless. So now when you want to feel happy, when you want to go chase the flight of fancy, you can. You have that flexibility. You have that freedom. We didn't pull this emotional thing in at the time. But yeah, these these two uh, different ideas that we've had uh, do seem to go very well together. Yeah, I think it's so good. It's like we've got this under control and now follow that breadcrumb of if it's envy leading towards something positive of going to New Orleans. Bring that up again. Do you like music? I do like music. <laughs> do. That's a, okay, I wrote an article of why you should spend your money on experiences or uh, music experiences because I had okay. Dr. Kumar on and he studies enduring satisfaction when you spend your money on experiences. And we talked about sure. his experience with going to see Prince. So I'm going to yeah. add one more final question, even though I said it. What was the best musical experience that you've ever spent money on? Best musical experience? Oh, man. Well, one of my, maybe the, my favorite concert, maybe I do that, a band that I don't think many people know about. They haven't been together in a while. The Dresden Dolls. So the city in Germany, Dresden, Germany, it's Dresden Dolls. Amanda Palmer is there, was there, you know, lead singer, pianist. She has had a solo career for a while. So check this out. Props to the Dresden Dolls and Amanda Palmer. I went to see one of their concerts in Atlanta. And I, like, I still remember. It's like I can like, close my eyes and like, I'm there. It was such an incredible event. Two people, it's a duo doing this wall of sound, incredible audio experience. The whole second half of the show is them just doing covers. And so like they did uh, the immigrant song by Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, dun, da, 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 dun, 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 right? They had a bunch of people come up on stage and act like they were oarsmen in a, a Viking longboat. They had like a giant cardboard Viking longboat that they wheeled down the stage. And again, this is two people. This is a duo. It was absolutely incredible. And that place was just electric. And yeah, had to pay for the tickets, whatever those were. Had to drive to Atlanta, however much that cost me. And yeah, it's bringing a smile to my face. It is. I could see the smile. Later, whatever. How long ago? So 2007 or 2008? So we're coming up on 10 years. Well, I'm rounding quite a bit. But um, 15? No, no, no. 2000. Not 17. 2000. 2000. 20 years if I round, 
Yeah, yeah. Why I think this is so amazing. What do you think? A thousand bucks maximum tickets driving if you had to stay in a hotel? Oh, I don't God, know if you- not even. Probably. I mean, at that time, it was maybe 80 or 90 bucks because now concerts are you know outrageously yeah. expensive. But for a broke grad student, mm. right? 90 bucks or whatever was, that wasn't nothing. When I was only making $14,000 a year, 90 bucks wasn't nothing. But yeah, absolutely worth it. That's the kind of stuff. I don't remember what I spent on groceries. I don't I know. remember any of this other day-to-day kind of stuff. But these, like that event, that stands out. Or that really amazing date, that stands out. That vacation to wherever, that stands out. When you go back and think about your life, that's what stands out. And amazingly, that stuff is what gives you quality of life today. Those events that happened 10 years from uh, ago, 15 years ago, they have these like ripples through your whole life history. They keep making you happy even after they're long gone. 17 years ago, and you're still smiling about it. And I bring that up because we all have those not... I, I've asked this to a lot of people and some people are like, oh, I don't like music. So whatever their experience is, but yeah. music to me is one of those things. Like you are like you... Ex- them rowing. There's this like collective effervescence of everyone just sitting there together enjoying that. Yeah. And I, I bring this up because it is nominal now how much you spent on it, how much you've spent on other stuff that has brought you zero yeah. satisfaction. Sure, you had to spend on housing and things like that. But I like this automating way so that we can take out the friction of the pain of saving, of uh-huh. having to do these hard tasks. But I think it also gives us permission to enjoy those times when we know things are set up over here and we can then, okay, I'm buying this ticket and I'm going to enjoy it as opposed to going with like, oh shoot, I shouldn't be doing this. Absolutely. There's the expense side. Absolutely. And then the, the income side too. So how do you make more money? And then once you have the new job, that's kind of automated, right? Your paychecks keep Mm -hmm. coming and coming once you get Mm -hmm. the job and then you lower those fixed expenses. Yeah. Cause that's what life is then is, is going and having those experiences having those experiences with other people. So there's a social aspect to it, right? And yeah, if you think about your money as just it's dollars in, dollars out, and at the end of the day, you have a high net worth, who cares? It's how do you translate the money into experiences? How do you translate the money into friendships, romantic relationships, experiences between you're the professor, they're the students, or you're the mentor, they're the protege. There's all sorts of different social relationships out there. That's what makes a life worth living. That's what makes a life well lived. The money is just the tool to get you there. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I have said this many times on this podcast, but you're just reminding me of, I co-wrote an album about my money story. And one of the lines is, money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sail. Oh, and yeah. it made, you, what you're saying there made me think of, about it. You said it much more poetically than I did. <laughs> so you came into Dalton education. I'm from Canada. I'm not overly familiar with it. The most object, not, well, you said most, the very objective lens. And here you are, I would suggest a subjective thinker of psychologist training. What were you thinking? why dalton is that the question i'm going to bring some of the subjective psychological frameworks to this very objective way of thinking part of that i think the folks who've long run dalton education saw that value there like hey we haven't historically 
leaned into this as much. I've only been working for Dalton now for about seven months. So I'm still kind of new in this role. I reached out to them. I was like really eager to work with them. I have a, a ton of respect for the crew from uh, Dr. Mike Dalton, who founded it almost 20 years ago. James Dalton, Joe Galise, uh, Lisa Pender has been there for years. Like so many of these folks have done absolutely incredible things. It's been one of the fastest growing CFP educators in the country for the last decade. Every year when the exam scores come out, it's always up there as either the highest pass rates or like at worst, the second highest pass rates. So they've been doing a fantastic job and I'm really honored to be part of this team now. And then it's a matter of like, where's the whole field going, right? So it's one thing to look back on the successes of the last 20 years and say, yeah, it, it used to work, so let's just keep going. But I think there is a recognition, not only at Dalton, but everywhere. This mm -hmm. is the future of the field. We've got to lean into the more subjective skills. We've got to pull in the client psychology and the planner psychology. This is our field, and you can't deny that. Thank you for that answer. And I know I kind of put you on the spot seven months into the role too. So good Easy. things to say about Dalton. You could say good things about Dalton. Easy. Well, I'm, I'm going to Google them. <laughs> Please do. We were talking about this before. And maybe our next appearance, we have to get Dr. Michael Thomas and you in the same room oh, so we yeah. can like research your old podcasts. And you guys have both been wonderful guests on my podcast. And it'd be fun to put you guys both back in the same room. Yeah, that would be fun. Having a, I, I just saw Michael in New Orleans. Great to see him again. So yeah, let's get him back on uh, your show too. Is that where you got your poster? That trip? Oh, that, no, that that's an old poster now. New Orleans, oh, okay. a great city. Always great try to city. get back to New Orleans. Great food, great culture, great everything. Music. Get to the city. That's right. Those grocery stores with the po' boys in the back are just, they're just so good. Anyhow. My final question, and your answer may have changed over the last three years, but let's imagine you're at end of life. Okay. You're sitting on a front porch, looking out at something that brings you peace, ease, and contentment. You decide to write a letter to whoever about what you learned about a happy, healthy relationship with money. What would be a key theme to that letter? Oh, geez. I mean, if I go back to what we were saying this whole time, listen to that little voice in the back of your head, listen to that emotion. There's things that were at the time, I was like, yeah, this probably is gonna bite me in the ass. And hey, sure enough, it did, right? Listen to that voice, listen to the doubts. You know, there's a reason you feel the doubt. And that thing that seemed to make you feel really good when you did it, do a little bit more of that. Follow those emotions. That, that part of your brain doesn't speak English, but it's telling you something really powerful. Well, well said. Money just offers such a good window to those emotions. I feel like our relationships with money, money just, it can be this condo into a new version of ourselves by recognizing the emotions. Anyhow, thank you so much for joining us again. For listeners who are interested in Dalton, things that you're doing, where can you point them to online? Dalton-Education is our website, Serify, C-E-R-I-F-I. Dot com. That's the, the bigger company that owns Dalton. And then for me, follow me on LinkedIn. I know, Sean, you're going to post this on LinkedIn. I'm going to throw out some other thing we haven't talked about yet. I'm starting up a new nonprofit. It's called 10K for 10K. This is in uh, recognition. I'm very close to hitting 10,000 followers on LinkedIn. And when I hit that milestone, I'm going to donate $10,000, which is two full ride CFP 
education scholarships. So two people are going to go through CFP. It changed my life. I want to help pay that forward. And then uh, through that nonprofit, raise more money for scholarships, raise more money for this profession and help more people to uh, have a better life and better careers. Good for you. I only met you online, but I feel like you've always been involved with nonprofits and different ways of helping make this field more accessible for many other people. So really good job. Thank you, sir. Thank you all for listening. <laughs> Add me on LinkedIn. Yes, we will put that in the show notes and and connect with Matt on LinkedIn. I'll put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Dr. Gordon is doing some fascinating work. If you thought that conversation was good, I suggest you go way back to episode number 16 when I had a conversation with Dr. Matt Gordon on how to budget for happiness. Check it out, episode 16, How to Budget for Happiness. Until next week, have yourself a great one. It's just a win in the city.